Thanks, Christy, and good morning, church, those of you who are here in the room and those of you who are joining us online, especially if you're joining us for the very first time at a desk, in your living room, in your kitchen. It's good to have you here. If you are returning from previous weeks, then you'll be familiar with the theme that we're going to dig into today. It starts with a question. It's kind of a a haunting question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Uh, and it's actually not a theoretical question. It's not a theological question, if you mean by that, something that's confined to the academies of learning. It's a very practical question. What is it that Jesus' followers ought to look like? What is the life that God prepared for us, designed us for? Uh, what is the good life that he has for us? And there is a word that's used in the Bible to describe that kind of life. It's an old-fashioned word. It's a word that feels out of step with us. It's a word that we probably don't like to use in describing ourselves. But it is nevertheless a biblical word meant to apply to the lives of God's people. It's the word that's in the title of our series. We are called to be saints. The word saint. Literally, saint means holy one or a holy person. Last week, we spent some time talking about how that objective may be achieved, not just through sin avoidance or or rule following, as if there were some kind of master checklist. And if you got all the right boxes here and avoided all of the bad boxes over there, you'll have arrived. Sanctification, which is the process of being made holy, is more than just behavior modification tuning up a bunch of of bad habits and, and cultivating some better ones. No, sainthood, the life of a holy person, is what happens inevitably as a byproduct of somebody who spends their life immersed in Christ. The preoccupation with the writers of the New Testament is with that language. That as followers of Jesus, we are in Christ. That is our location, that is our identity, that is our purpose, that is the great invitation that God gives. Come be a part of me and I will be a part of you. In a sense, it is the modern replaying of the great promise God gave to his people way back at the very beginning. Remember, he calls the people out and says, I want you to be my people, holy people, and I will be your God and you will be my people. And we're going to be knit together in this. The Apostle Paul, who loved that phrase, in Christ, we are in Christ, he would say things like this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. This isn't about me anymore, but Christ who lives in me. And it goes even deeper. Uh, John, who writes a, a bunch of letters towards the end of the New Testament, one of them, 1 John 4, says this, God is love. Oh, we know that. God is love. But catch this, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You feel that? The coming together of these things? And over the centuries, every once in a while, there is a follower, follower of Jesus, who gets a vision for what this kind of life looks like. Centuries ago, there was a man named Nicholas Herman, uneducated household servant, born into a poor family, talks about a moment that happened around the time of his 18th birthday when he was out pondering the beauty, the majesty of creation. 
And he was brought to his knees by this. And he decided he would devote his life to an environment where he could reflect deeply on these things. So he, he goes into a monastery. He spends his whole life in the kitchen as a dishwasher of all things. But he devotes his life in addition to that to being with God. In every moment, as best he could, in every thought, as much as he could catch them in his head, he goes by the name no longer uh, as Nicholas Herman, but he is known as Brother Andrew. And when he dies, this, they thought, slow-thinking servant dishwasher leaves together, or leaves for them a set of letters which gets put together in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And after the Bible... This becomes the best-selling book, the most read book in the history of the world. From somebody who was known affectionately as the big dumb ox, turned out he had spent his life in pursuit of a life with God, a life in Christ. And now in a sense, here we are a few centuries later, and it's our turn. This series is part of, I think, what is probably one of our biggest dreams as a church. And one of our most important challenges, how is it that we can offer people a Jesus way of life that allows ordinary people, everyday folks, dishwashers and bus drivers, bank executives and classroom teachers, all of us, ordinary people, in a world that is modern and hard and filled with technology and challenging lifestyles, how is it that we discover, as disciples did a long time ago, as the early church did, as Brother Andrew did, how is it that we discover the ways that God transforms a human life? How does that happen? How many moments, this is always Brother Andrew's question, how many moments in my life can I feel with the conscious awareness of God? God is here, in this kitchen, I'm scrubbing this grimy pot. God is here. How can, how can I live my moments in awareness of the, the manifest presence of God? Surrender to those moments. How many moments in my life can I have him in my mind and, and in my will? This in Christ life. And this wasn't for Brother Andrew. It shouldn't be for us just a matter of more religious activities. Because remember, his primary activity is not a religious one. He's uh, scrubbing fry pans, washing out glasses. It's not just about more religious activity. It's a life uh, at peace and a sense of rootedness in the maker and ruler of the universe, moment by moment. And the opposite, a life without God, a life outside of Christ. Well, the opposite in his mind was death. By the way, um, and this is, this is an important point, I think. You know, what Jesus came to save us from was not exclusively, maybe not even primarily some eternal torture chamber off at the end of history. What he came to save us from was a life without God. And that life starts now. Another great pioneer, if you'd like, in this experiment of how God works in our lives was an early 20th century writer and leader, a missionary man named Frank Frank Laubach. Laubach was a missionary to many nations of the world. He is loved and revered even today in the Philippines. 
Uh, he was a teacher, a writer, deeply concerned about poverty and injustice and particularly illiteracy. He considered all of these things as barriers to peace and to the full unfolding of the kingdom, God's will on earth. They called him, I love this name, they called him the apostle to the illiterate. While he was working with a group of Muslims in a remote village in the Philippines, he developed a literacy program. That program has been used now to teach 60 million people around the world to read in their own language. And that was a foothold for bringing the wonders of God and the truth of the gospel into the lives of so many people. In addition to that, he was a great devotional writer. And this is one of the things he wrote. He said, the most wonderful discovery that has ever come to me is that I don't have to wait. That any hour for anybody can be rich with the presence of God. God has yet to bless anybody except right where they are. Sometimes we wait for a different set of circumstances, and that will be the sign of God's blessing. My circumstances have changed. It doesn't work that way. God blesses us in our circumstances. Listen to what Laubach goes on to say. For do you not see that God is trying a great experiment with human life? That's why there are so many of us. He has, now this was written a while ago, but he has 1,700,000,000 experiments going on around the world. We could say 8 billion now. And the question is, how far will this man and that woman allow me to carry them in this hour? How far? That's the experiment. A lot of you know the basic principles of experimentation and science, the scientific method. You start with a hypothesis, and then you test it. And then you have to be honest about the results. And if the results don't confirm the hypothesis, you amend it. We ought to be really honest and truthful about what stuff works in life and what doesn't. For going on a century now in the West, we have been experimenting with a life without God, life outside of God. I think we ought to be honest about how the experiment is going. Are people happier? Is society more civil and united? Is our, is our public discourse more respectful and less hateful? Are we more welcoming and less petrified of strangers? Have we eliminated violence and, and abuse and poverty? Or, we ought to be honest about how the experiment is going. There is this remarkable sense in which you know, God's desire is to make every moment of your life glorious. That's him right now. Say, hey, God, thank you for making my life glorious. That's the core of a life in Christ. I mean, we can talk about different practices and rhythms and relationships, but what it's really all about is freeing me up. Can you free up my mind, my habits, to be in Christ. Can that be the experiment of my life? That's where glorious existence is. The prophet said a long time ago, the book of Habakkuk. By the way, did you know there was a book called Habakkuk in the Bible? We should do a race. Who can find it first without cheating? Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What? As the waters cover the sea. Isn't that beautiful? Our goal is not just to sin less. I mean, 
Yeah, but no, God save us from goals that are too small. And our goal is not just to do more good things, of course, but too small. It is, to use Jesus' analogy, it is to live a life that is grafted to God, grafted to the vine. Abide in me, Jesus said, as I abide in you, both ways. Abide in me, increase the number of moments in your life where you live in fully surrendered, joyful awareness of God's presence. What does that look like? Well, over the next four weeks, we are going to explore, unpack four different interrelated dimensions of a holy life. A holy person is a wise person. A holy person does good work. A holy person loves others in a way that's consistent with how God has loved us. A holy person is a joyful person. Today, we're going to look at the first of those dimensions, that a holy person is a wise person. And we're going to start in a way that I hope makes it simple. Because when the title of the sermon is Invitation to Sapiential Holiness, you're going to want something at least in there that's simple. So let's, let's start simple. Every day, if you think it like this, every day is nothing more than a collection of moments. How many seconds are there in a day? Well, let's see, 12, carry the one. 86,400. 86,400 seconds in a day. And if you want a simple question, how many of those moments can I live with God? Be aware. Yeah. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to step up to this one. Maybe one of the ways that you think about connecting with God, what it means to live a life in Christ, is by stopping to think what's going on in your mind. Uh, Ian is here this morning. I think we were reminiscing a little bit about, uh, did computer engineering back in the 80s. And computer engineering meant taking a stack of of cards, punch cards, and feeding them into a mainframe computer. And what you put in determined what came out. And if you got the cards out of order or put them in backwards, the wrong thing came out. There is a sense in which that's going on in our minds. What's going in? What is coming out? The Bible puts it like this, Romans 12. It says, you know, you can be transformed. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Good stuff in, good stuff out. The psalmist says it like this, Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Every moment. And then, this is actually one of my favorites, Paul, 2 Corinthians 10. I take every thought and I make it captive to Christ. I make every thought captive to Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about today, how holiness is reflected in our thought life, that word sapiential holiness. Makes you sound smart just saying it, right? You've been saying it. Sapiential holiness. That that just means our thoughts. What does it mean to reflect the holiness and wisdom of God in our thoughts? A holy person is a wise person. Person. That's not the only mark of holiness, but hey, that's a good starting point. God is wise. God is holy. If we aspire to be like Him, but more importantly, if we are grounded in Him and Him in us, 
then doesn't it follow that wisdom would be one of the marks of holiness? Wisdom that's rooted in a reverence for and, and a surrender to God? Wisdom is a powerful, a tangible gift from God. And the pursuit of wisdom isn't something secondary or, or, or down the rung of priorities when it comes to understanding what it means to be human. It, it, is, it is the desire to seek out the fullness of who we are, how we were made, what it means to live the life we have as those fashioned in the image of God. That's wisdom. God is wise. We seek wisdom. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. We're talking about wisdom after all. Or if you have your devices, turn them on and let's look at Proverbs chapter 1, the passage Christy read. One of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament, the opening verses offer this concise, compelling description of wisdom. And they culminate in these words, Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're going to just make three quick observations about that passage. There is a link here between wisdom and instruction. Wisdom is something that gets passed on. It can be learned. Isn't that good news? That wisdom can get passed on from generation to generation. It can be learned. Stupid can also get passed on, right? I mean, and we see that a lot. But wisdom can get passed on. A wise person is a learned person. But, and this is important, those two words aren't interchangeable. Knowing about stuff is not the same as being wise. It would be hard to be wise without knowing some stuff, but knowing about things does not make you wise. Knowledge alone does not bring wisdom. We like to imagine that with the passing of days, we become wiser people. Sometimes it's the case, but every once in a while you meet somebody and and we say they have wisdom beyond their years. So it's not age alone. And then sometimes you meet people advanced in life and say, you are stupid beyond your years. No, you'd never say that, of course, but you know what I mean. Time alone, knowledge alone doesn't bring wisdom. But there is a link between wisdom and instruction. Here's a second little observation. You see that word prudence in the passage? Look back at verse 3. There's a link between prudence and knowledge, or prudence and wisdom. And we think, though, that sounds like an old-fashioned word. You're a prude, right? uh, But it's a good word. Uh, Prudence means discipline forethought, wise behavior. There's a link between knowledge and wise behavior. That this isn't just head stuff. This is practical stuff. There ought to be marks of character that are evident in the choices we make and the behavior that we espouse. And you see in verse 3 a triptych, three things that describe what this ought to look like. Righteousness, justice, and equity. What is the outflow of this accumulation of knowledge? Well, it ought to be these things evident in our behavior and our choices and our conduct. Righteousness, justice, and equity. So first two observations, link between wisdom and instruction, link between wisdom and prudence. And here's the third one. This is unmistakable. There is a link between wisdom 
and the fear of the Lord. Wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Okay. And, and when you see the word fear, uh, I don't want you to think, because it's Halloween this month, I don't want you to think terror, you know, soul-crushing anxiety. Awe, reverence, humility in the face of an awesome God. The King James Version that some of you may have grown up with described God as an awful God. But it didn't mean what we think. It meant filled with awe. There's just so many things about God that make you lift your head in wonder and fill your minds with splendor. So there's this link between wisdom and the fear of the Lord. God is wise. God is the source of wisdom for those who would be wise. What does it mean to be wise? It means to let God be God. But also to, to understand that if God is love, that to be wise and godlike means to delight in the things that God delights in. And we're going to come back to that towards the end of the message. Okay, fast forward in your Bibles. We were in the Old Testament Proverbs. We're going to be in the New Testament in the book of Colossians little letter that Paul writes to a church in Colossae in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Let's, let's read Paul, who picks up on these themes. He says, For this reason, since the day that we first heard it, we've not ceased praying for all of you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you can lead lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work, as you grow in the knowledge of God. You might want to circle that verse in your Bibles. Paul speaks repeatedly about wisdom, and he doesn't mean the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is not the same as having a high IQ. It's not the same as having an expansive grasp of trivia and factual data. Wisdom and knowledge are rooted in, are found in Christ, in whom, Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And of particular importance when the Bible speaks about wisdom is that wisdom always has a practical edge to it, a practical application. This is not head knowledge for the sake of head knowledge. This is knowledge that leads to action. Wisdom is knowledge that leads to action. The outflow of a life in Christ is practical. There are practical signs of this. Paul says there's fruit. You bear fruit when you do this. The fruit is born in every good work, he says. So together, knowledge of God and a life well lived, these form a heart of wisdom. God is wise. God is the source of wisdom. The Bible speaks about the fear of the Lord as, as the fountain of wisdom. To be wise is to let God be God and to value and live out the things that flow from God. Make sense? Wisdom is like applied knowledge. This is what's in the classroom put into work in the world. The outflow of that life in Christ is practical goodness. In your small groups this week, as you break some of these things down, you're going to run across this word, I think. The word is moral 
intelligence. Uh, same thing, moral intelligence. Wisdom marked by both understanding and also behavior. Wisdom that leads to action. That is moral intelligence. Wise men, wise women, they don't just hear the stuff, they live the stuff. Nobody understood this more than the guy who wrote a little book at the end of the New Testament called James. He said that a Christian mind is always accompanied by a Christian way of acting, that true holiness involves this deep congruence between what's going on inside, the inner life, and what's going outside, the outward conduct. The opposite of that is devastating. What do we call it when the things that people say and think don't match their behavior? Hypocrisy, right? And that has been the serpent nipping at the heel of the church from the very beginning. And boy, it's been ugly over the past century, hasn't it? How many people have turned their back on the church and therefore never been able to to hear the good news of Jesus? Because it's not the church that's most important, it's Jesus. And the church is just there as a vehicle to get people to Jesus. But they've turned their back. Why? Hypocrisy. It's not wisdom. They talk a good talk, but they don't live it. That's not wisdom. In both the Old Testament and the New and the Proverbs and this little book of James, the teachings of Jesus, the call to wisdom has this very practical dimension. Let me just give you a quick little tangent about what this looks like. Uh, There are three distinctive characteristics. They're unmistakable. When, When the Bible speaks about the characteristics of a mature believer, a wise person, they appear repeatedly. If you want to, this afternoon, flip open your Bibles, look at Ephesians 4 and 5. It's one of many, many examples. But here's the three. And if you think I'm cherry picking, I, I promise you, you will see these recurring themes again and again. What does a holy life look like? A wise person is marked by a constrained sexuality. What were the things that your mama always told you never to talk about at the dinner table? Religion, politics, sex, and money, right? Turns out that these are the very places where holiness is most at play. A wise person is marked by constrained sexuality, constrained by the limits of what is good and noble and excellent. Not we do it because society says it's fine now, not we do it because it feels great. No, it's constrained because we realize the perils of going out there and leaving a train wreck, a trail of wounded souls behind us and giving away little bits of ourselves to person after person. Sexuality, one of God's great gifts, was meant to bond people together. Lifetime bondage. Lifetime commitment. And when we go just tossing it around, is it any wonder that the the tragic side effect is devastating hurt and pain? So wise person, constrained sexuality. Here's a second, wise person marked by simplicity of speech. How many times do you think about that? You know, the wise person doesn't talk a lot. That's why I'll never be accused of being wise. But the wise person doesn't talk a lot, but when they do talk, you really listen, don't you? James talks about this. He says, it's, it's the taming of the tongue. James chapter 3. Words that when spoken are aptly spoken. Words that edify and encourage. and Words that, that reflect a kind of understanding. Words that... Oh, they're not harsh. They're not marked by slander or gossip or sarcasm. 
good words. Then here's the third marker. A wise person conducts their affairs with financial and economic integrity. Careful management of their money, generosity, the fear of the Lord. A wise person knows that money is just one more means to honor God in our lives, to serve the needs around us, to serve our own basic needs for food and shelter. Wise people, they don't live in anxiety about money. They trust God as their provider. But more importantly, they are marked by this profound sense of a a commitment to justice and equity and generosity. They're characterized by a respect for money, but not a love of money. And it's notable, you can check me on this, that when it comes to human behavior, Jesus speaks about finances and money more than any other topic And it's not even close. It's a factor of four or five fold. Four or five times more than any other topic. Constrained sexuality. um, Wise words, good words. And financial affairs conducted with, with generosity and integrity. However, and this is really important, when we speak about these kind of things, the practical outflow of a life in Christ, moral intelligence, if you want the word. It's imperative that, that these all get placed in, in the right context. These are not ends in themselves. These are always the byproduct of something else. Think of it like a dartboard. If you put these things, these, these moral behaviors as the bullseye and toss your darts towards that, you will hit sometimes and you will miss most of the time. But if you ground your life in Christ, you in him, him in you, that this will increasingly over time become the byproduct of that kind of life. Because he's not the bullseye, he's not even the board. He's the room and the world in which the whole game is played. Holiness is not the same as morality. There is moral intelligence. There is practical wisdom. But holiness, wisdom, it's not just another moral code. The driving energy of the Christian life is always union with Christ. We are in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, It makes sense to me that we should be just about done. So... Why don't we do this? Just just stretch a little bit because I got one more thing I want to say and then then we'll wrap it up. Just because this is such this is such a yeah, okay, thanks, Tim. <laughs> this is such an important theme, and you're gonna run across it in the New Testament, you're gonna run across it in uh, uh in your small group discussions this week. There is a language that gets used a lot in the Bible and in discussions around the Bible. It speaks about the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. And I have to admit, I grew up, I was, I was a geeky kid. I loved Star Trek. You know, I grew up in the 70s, 80s. And, and there was this one episode of Star Trek where they land on an alien planet and it's ruled by a, an alien intelligence. And when it's finally the great reveal, who's behind the curtain? It's a series of brains floating in these glass bottles. And I guess I kind of carried that image forward when I thought about the mind of Christ, that it's sort of this, this cosmic brain out there, and uh, and I want to sort of get in touch with this cosmic brain. No, that's that's not it. Seeking the mind of Christ, cultivating a Christian mind, 
means seeing the world through a Christ-informed perspective. Seeing the world the way God sees it. Because that's, after all, what Jesus was. Jesus was the window through which we understand what God was like. You want to understand how God sees the world? Look at how Jesus saw the world, how he interacted. And it's rooted, that, that way of seeing the world, in this grand story, this big arc of creation, fall, and redemption. The Bible, of course, is a book about God before it's ever a book about us. And so God's story starts with creation. God creates a universe. It's vast, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's terrific. And he creates human beings, and he gives them this lavish gift. He gives it nowhere else. says, I give you this. I give you the right to shape the course of your own lives. I give you the right to choose. And they choose well until they don't. And the language we've used for that, that full stop when they stop choosing well is the fall. Because that's when things start to fall fall apart. It's true in your life. It's certainly true in mine. When you don't choose well, things begin to fall apart. That was the fall. So we have creation, we have fall, and thankfully fall is not the last chapter in the book. The last chapter is redemption, restoration. Things get put back together again. So what what would it mean to have the mind of Christ? What does that mean for creation? The mind of Christ sees the world as something created by, upheld by a power and goodness beyond our ability to fathom, except that Christ has invited us into it, to be part of it. You know, I think it's a great travesty that the environmental movement has led the charge to celebrate and take care of God's good creation. Where's the church? Where's the church who says, Creation itself is singing to the splendor of God who made it. Where's the church who says the heavens are telling the glory of God? We want creation to sing out the beauty of God, not sing a story of destruction and and misuse and abandonment. The appreciation of the goodness of God. I mean, I know a few places where it can be found more more abundantly than in creation. If you look for a way to keep your thoughts captive to the beauty of God, get out there in creation. Enjoy the lavishness of what God has made. Point a telescope up in the sky. Walk through the pathways, the forks of the credit during this beautiful fall season. Creation is part of the mind of Christ and a reverence for it and a sense of heartbreak when we see it in peril. And then fall. A holy person is wise, not just in realizing the beauty of creation, but the brokenness of it. Holy people, wise people, are they're deeply aware of the presence of evil and the consequences of, of human sin. Those things that are foreign to God's purpose and design that will eventually be overcome, they are nevertheless powerful and real, and we cannot, should not ignore them. Wise people are not naive about the realities of the world. But, and here's the third thing, this is the redemption story. They are not cynical. They are not pessimistic. They are not filled with despair. God save us from despairing Christians. Holy people, wise people, are people marked by hope. They know that the kingdom of God, the goodness and mercy of God, 
means that God himself will prevail, that sin and evil are defeated foes. To have a Christian mind means that you speak of life and death, but you also speak of resurrection, and you see everything through that lens. So the source of wisdom and holiness, this real-time encounter with Jesus, is an encounter with all of it. The life and teaching of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, but also the resurrection, the victory of Jesus. When I was baptized at the age of 14, my grandfather gave me a Bible, beautiful, burgundy, leather-bound, gold-gilded pages, uh, King James Version, which I actually grew to love a little bit as a teenager. But he inscribed the front with a verse. And uh, I knew I'd heard the words before, but they took on a meaning for me on that day that Uh, Well, it's really held ever since. There were words written not just in the Bible, but they got written into my life. Maybe it's true for some of you. I want you to hear the echoes and the refrains of everything we've said about wisdom and holiness in these words from Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 7. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Read that with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We trust the Lord. We live in Christ.